The title of the message that I want to share with you guys today is The Processional of the Powerless as the Way of Our Triumphant King. Before we get started, I, I just want to share that it's my conviction that when, when our Lord Jesus spoke to those who had the ears to hear, it wasn't for the transferring of data from one mind to another. That when Christ speaks, and indeed when the Word of God goes forth, it is an invitation to those who would have ears to hear. And so today, as I share with you from the Gospel reading of Mark, I want to invite you in to this passage. I want to invite you into this processional. That as a tree whose branches can bring shelter amidst the storms or shade and the heat of a summer day, Christ invites us to come. Not only to understand, but to stand under this way, this way of our King. My prayer is that God would move in such a way that His people would not simply better comprehend this passage, but would in some mystical way enter into this great processional that we commonly refer to as the triumphal entry. Me and my wife got married about just about eight years ago, and um, this, this month, April 10th, and after we got married, um, we had an old VW bus, a 1972 VW bus. And for our honeymoon, we went traveling across the country um, from here, and we drove up to British Columbia, and we were going to go see the sites. The beginning, actually just before we got married, the bus broke down, so we had to do the first part of our honeymoon um, by borrowing a friend's car to get us to, uh, to Virginia Beach. But after we returned from there, the bus had been fixed, and so we continued on our way, and we started to head west. And during our journey, we saw just a tremendous amount of beauty. You know, this country is gorgeous. God's creation is incredible. And as we drove, we saw beautiful sights, you know. But whenever we came to a place of certain significance, it was time to pull the bus over to get out and to take a walk. When you get to, you don't drive by the Grand Canyon, you know. You don't drive by Banff National Park, you know. We, you might drive by, you know, I remember we went through Memphis and we, we did drive by Graceland. But we, you don't drive, there's certain things you don't drive by, you know. And so there's a time in which you get out and walk to see all that there is to see. That's where we're at in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, in the first ten chapters, has covered the first 33 years of Christ's life. The last six chapters of the Gospel of Mark are dedicated to this week that we are now entering into. The first ten chapters, Mark has taken us on a tour ride through the life of Christ, and there's many incredible, beautiful things to see and to study. But here, at the triumphal entry, at this point in Mark chapter 11, the gospel writer pulls over the bus and he encourages us to get out and to take a walk and to see all that there is to see. So therefore, I want now to invite the church to get out of the bus, to slow down this week, as we enter into this most holy week of our faith and see all that there is to see as we join into this processional. In order to really fully understand the triumphal entry, however, we're going to have to 
just quickly jump back on the bus and look at chapter 10, where we really go through a lot real quick, okay? There's four stories in Mark chapter 10 that I want to I highlight, because I believe that Mark sets up the triumphal entry through these stories, okay? Christ is gathering his processional. Christ is gathering the people that he wants. Christ is on his way from Jericho to the Mount of Olives, down to Jerusalem. He's begun his journey, the way of the Lord. This, this, the way of the cross has, been begun, has begun. And he's, and he's gathering folks. He's, he's, he's inviting folks into it as in Mark chapter 10. The first story that we're going to look at, there's four stories. The first one is where the little children, there's some parents, and Christ is teaching, and, and some parents bring their children to him. And the disciples rebuke the parents for bringing these children. Apparently, I don't know what was going on in the, in the minds of the disciples, but what, I, what I'm understanding, what I think is going on, and I think what would happen today if someone really important entered into this room and some children tried to come and talk to them, is that we'd have a sense like, well, don't waste this time. I mean, these, the children aren't important. They don't have power. They're not, they're not going to bring any depth to the conversation. They're, they're, they're powerless. But Christ rebukes the disciples for for getting in between him and the children. And he says, those who do not enter the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Okay, so that's the first story. The second story is the rich ruler. Note here that no one keeps the rich ruler from getting to Christ, right? If you look at this passage, no one's getting in between Christ and the rich ruler because here is someone of importance. Here is someone of significance. Someone worth entering into a conversation. But what Jesus tells the rich young ruler, essentially, is that he has to become like a child. He tells him that unless he's going to give up all that he has and become like a child, enter into that same powerlessness, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The rich young ruler walks away. The sons of Zebedee is the third story. These are disciples who've been with Jesus for a while, right? So they should get it. They should understand what's going on. Well, they come to Jesus, and they tell him, and and he asks them a question. He asks them, what is it that you want from me? And they said, Lord, we want to sit at your right and at your left. When you come in power and in glory, Lord, we want to be there with you. They want power. They want prestige. They want to be people of importance. Many of us can relate to that sense, to that feeling, to that vying for power. Many of us have entered into that kind of attitude or that kind of movement in our life. Christ tells them that unless they become like a slave, that if they want to be great, they must first become slaves. The fourth story that we're going to look at, just a snapshot on our tour bus, is blind Bartimaeus sitting on the side of the road. And when we get to the story of blind Bartimaeus, I've got to believe that Jesus, that Bartimaeus to Jesus is like a stream of water in a desert. Because Bartimaeus gets it, as no one else in this chapter has gotten it. Blind Bartimaeus is a beggar sitting on the side of a road who has no sight. And he cries out. He is known, he's told, he's asked, he asks in the story, who is it? And they say, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And when he cries out, he cries out, Son of David. And he admits and he confesses Christ's authority over him right away. And then when Jesus says to him, what is it that you want from me? He asks Bartimaeus the exact same question 
that Jesus asked the disciples. Bartimaeus asks only to be able to see. He confesses his weakness. He confesses his blindness, his inability to see. And Christ says, your faith has made you well. And he tells him to go. And Bartimaeus, unlike the ruler, it says, follows Jesus on the way. And that on the way is a key phrase for this section of the Scriptures. On the way. Jesus is on the way. Bartimaeus joins Jesus on the way. In the beginning, Bartimaeus, it says, was on the side of the road. He was off of the way. After this encounter with Christ, have mercy on me, he cries out. Then he joins Jesus on the way, on the way of the cross. In, uh, in the worship guide, I noticed these prayers. And follow him in the way that leads to eternal life. Following him in the way. Those who seem to be great will be the least. Those who seem least will be great. So Christ is gathering the powerless. If you, if you look at these four, four stories, children, if everyone was to have been just obedient to Christ, who would have been following Him? Would have been children, a man with no possessions, Slaves, people who have given themselves as those slaves, and a blind man. And you cannot think of four more powerless groups of people in society. Christ is gathering with him people who can acknowledge their blindness. In John chapter 9, verse 39, Christ says, It is for judgment, I have come to render judgment in the world that those who are blind may have sight, and that those who believe they can see, or those who think they can see, may be blinded. So Christ invites us into this powerlessness, this processional of the powerless. Jesus himself, after this section of chapter 10, as we move into the triumphal entry and the focus for our day, Jesus himself begins to show them in his very flesh this processional, this way of our king. If we look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 through 12, it says, Behold, Rejoice, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. In one translation I studied, is victorious and triumphant is he. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation, yet humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, And the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. So for you also. Because of the blood of my covenant with you. I will set your prisoners free. From the waterless pit. I will set your prisoners free. 
It is those who are captive that Christ is coming to set free. Jesus himself, in what can only be referred to as the most humble triumphant entry that the world has ever seen, mounts not a mighty war horse, but a donkey. This king, meek and lowly. Simon uh, um, Maccabee, 200 years earlier, was the great liberator of Jerusalem. And he rode in on a stallion. Alexander the Great himself rode into Jerusalem in triumph upon a war horse. But our king, bearing witness to his own words, the meek will inherit the earth, enters upon a donkey, a symbol of meekness and a symbol used when one was to be coming in peace. This, this sort of um, wordy title that I gave us, the, procession, the processional of the power, powerless as the way of our triumphant king, could more articulately be said as, it is the meek, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I want to look at the crowd for one minute here, because there's different ways in which we can affiliate with this passage, and one of them is as the crowd. One of them as as people observing what is taking place. And I'd like to read from this book that uh, Aubrey lent me, The Gospel of Mark, a commentary by Francis J. Maloney, says his command to bring a donkey rather than a horse had set the scene for a humble entry. But it has been transformed now by the disciples and many who have their own understanding of who Jesus is and what he will do in Jerusalem. The hopes of those who welcome him in triumph as the one who is coming in the name of the Lord to bring in the kingdom of David have missed something. The praise to God, which closes this acclamation, is not enough to correct the false... Sorry, I was going to skip that part. The disciples have again failed to accept that Jesus has come to Jerusalem as the Son of Man who will suffer, die, and be vindicated in the resurrection. As far as the followers are concerned, Jesus enters Jerusalem in order to establish the kingdom in power. That is the cause for their celebration. As far as Jesus is concerned, he enters into suffering and death. He will not be king until he is nailed to the cross. Okay? The Gospel of Mark, and Aubrey helped me understand this, is really like the movie The Sixth Sense in a way. If you, can, you know where at the end you realize that Bruce Willis was dead the whole time, that he was a ghost that whole time? It, and then you want to go back and watch. Oh yeah, sorry. Plot spoiler. Plot spoiler. And then you're like, when it happens, you're like, wait a minute. I've got to go back and watch this whole movie over again. Because the end informs everything else that takes place. The cross of Christ informs everything else that takes place in the Gospel of Mark. And our, and our understanding of His teachings. And our understanding of His way. It's the cross of Christ that this whole thing hinges on. Now, the point must be made that in one sense, definitely the crowd is entirely right in their praise, in their acclamation. Jesus is the one who has come in the name of the Lord. He is the King who comes. The point, however, is that the church must not fail to see that it is not enough to simply know that He is King. It is also of the utmost and vital importance that we understand and know the way of our King. Again, in our worship Um, thing. What do we call this? Worship guide. It says, We who bear them 
in his name, may ever hail him as our king, which is what they're doing, and they're right. Okay, I'm not taking anything away from what's going on in that they are right. He is their king. But it says also, and then and follow him in the way that leads to eternal life. And they do not yet know the way. They don't have the privilege of seeing the cross and being able to look back through the gospel. But we do. So we need to understand where we sometimes get misled and where we sometimes, if the cross doesn't inform our lives and what's going on, the ways in which we can miss the point. It is our spiritual disease as humans to see things from our own self-interest. And it is because of the tendency to see things from our own self-interest that we first see this passage, that we must first see this passage as the processional of the powerless before we can understand in what ways it is indeed ultimately and entirely triumphant. The reason being is that we are so easily blinded and intoxicated by power and triumphalism. If we take a close look at the Beatitudes, and this has been the burden on my heart that I've wanted to share with the gospel churches of our community and, 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 and basically anyone who will take a minute to listen, is that there is a certain order in which the Beatitudes are set. And it's the same as this, this idea that Christ first comes through the cross before he enters into the resurrection. It says in our worship guide, whose most dear son went up, went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified. There's a certain process in this way of God. In Corinthians 13, verses 3 through 5, it says that, Know that Christ is not weak among you. It says, Indeed, he was crucified in weakness, but now he, he, it is in the power of God that he lives among you. But he was crucified in weakness. There is a process. In the Beatitudes, we start off with, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Many times we don't understand, especially the mourning one. Why is it that the mournful are the ones who are blessed? But Christ is taking us through a death, a kind of powerlessness, a realization that we need Him. And when we go through the poverty of spirit, and when we go through the mourning, we enter into meekness. And from that standpoint of meekness, then He starts to speak to us of mercy, and of purity, and of being peacemakers and of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And at the end, he says to us, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. At the end, he speaks to us of righteousness. He doesn't start us off with righteousness. And the reason is, is that if we do not go through poverty of spirit, and if we do not experience a mourning of our own sinfulness, then we'll never enter into meekness. And if we never enter into meekness and we jump right into being peacemakers, or right into being super pure and holy what we end up with is a kind of self-righteousness. Because we never died before we entered into these things. So first the cross. Our own self-interest, because we never first went through the death to our own self-interest, that is found in the meekness. It is true that Christ is triumphant. 
But it is only through meekness that He triumphs. It is true that Christ is resurrected, but it is only once He has been to the cross. Alexander the Great was a man who didn't get the meekness part, right? He's another man who triumphed in Jerusalem, but he didn't get the meekness part. But how many people do you know living today that will give their entire life in loyalty and indeed even be willing to, to, to suffer death on behalf of Alexander the Great? No one, right? Do we know anyone? How many of, the, how many of us in this room would do such a thing for our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through meekness that Christ is triumphant. It is the meek who will inherit the earth. In, I want to look at Philippians chapter 3 real quick. Verse 10. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not a self-righteousness, not a self-seeking, but that which comes... I was, sorry, I was adding that stuff. But that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There is a resurrection, but it is through a cross. The crowd thinks it's the resurrection kind of right now, you know. They're really excited. It's like, this is it. We've made it. But Christ is just entering into the cross. And if we will trust our Father in heaven as Christ trusted His Father, that we know that when we too come to the cross that there will be a resurrection. That's another plot spoiler for us. The end of this story. There is a resurrection. So in concluding this passage, it's my belief and conviction that God's Word, that God always desires for His Word to be made flesh among his people. Christ, in a real and unique way that can never be replicated, was the very word of God made flesh. But I believe ultimately it is God's desire every time that his word goes out that it be made flesh in the lives of its hearers. And in that spirit, I want to once again invite the church to the incarnation during this, our holiest week of the year, to enter in the way of our triumphant king, through this great procession of the powerless, trusting in the mystery that is the church, we as the very body of Christ, as His hands, as His feet, as His eyes, as His toes, His ears, all sorts of different parts, that we as the very body of Christ, this Easter, can mount the donkey of meekness, and peaceableness, and humbly, lowly, with no remaining vestige of power, enter into the way of our King, the way of the cross, trusting and knowing and believing that there will be a resurrection. For those of us in the room 
whether what you deal with is a lot of power. Power is intoxicating. It might be power over your spouse. It might be power over your children. It might be power over employees. It might be power over, you know, the mentally handicapped kid that, that sits next to you on the bus ride to school for the kids. You know, it, there's so many ways in which we are entrusted at times with power. And for those of us that are experiencing those kind of temptations, we enter in with Christ into meekness. We, in the way of the cross, release any remaining vestige of power and get on that donkey and humbly trust the way of the cross and that God will provide for the resurrection for us. Those of us who are dealing with struggles and sin, see, what, what we work with a lot out at the farm is folks who deal with addiction. And many of us, if not all of us living, deal with some form of addiction, one or another. And you know what the most important, important first step for someone dealing with an addiction is to admit powerlessness. Admit that they have to give up. I heard a guy who, who lived with us for six months visiting us, and he's doing really well. And, uh, and he had a friend who wasn't doing so well, and he said, yeah, you know, it's really hard just to give up. You know, And so much in our culture, our culture tells us to never give up. You can never give up. But for the alcoholic, for those who are struggling in addiction, the key is to surrender, to give up, to admit powerlessness. Because when we admit that powerlessness, we enter into God's power. It is through that that we enter into the resurrection through the cross. The, la- the first step in the 12 steps is admitted powerless. The, the 11th step is is that we pray only for, knowledge, for, for God's will in our lives and the power to carry that out. You go from powerlessness to entering into a power which is God's, just as we read in these passages that I, that I referenced earlier. So that's the invitation to the, to the Church of the Incarnation this week as we enter into this time. To join, in, join with Christ as His hands and His feet into this procession of the powerlessness and the way of our triumphant King. May God bless us. May God keep us. May God's face shine upon us. Thanks be to Christ.